New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Much of popular psychology presumes that the difficulties a person faces, addiction, depression, anxiety, or low self-esteem, are caused by and therefore must be addressed by the individual. However, we also live in a web of relationships, including family, friendships, organizations, cultures, and subcultures. This web plays a role in our struggles. Our guest today makes the provocative statement that there is no symptom that belongs only to the individual, whether that symptom is emotional, spiritual, physical, social, or financial. When we don't consider this larger web, we're more likely to feel shame about our suffering and our inability to heal our psychological symptoms. In essence, the individual may believe that their difficulty is only about them, their limits, pathologies, deficiencies, and failures. Today, we'll be exploring how we may experience deeper healing, healing that is truly sustainable and is connected to others, to family, to community, to culture, to the globe, with our guest, David Bedrick. David Bedrick is a psychological activist and ally to the unheard and marginalized voices inside individuals and the culture at large. He's a teacher, counselor, attorney, organizational consultant, and writer. He's a practitioner of process-oriented psychology, a branch of Jungian psychology. He did his clinical training at the Process Work Institute, which is inspired by the work of Arnie Mandel. Bedrick is a diplomate of the Institute. Currently, he maintains a practice as a counselor and coach for individuals and groups. He also speaks and writes on topics ranging from ethics, diversity, and relationships to dreams, diet, body image, anger, and shame. And he's a blogger for the Huffington Post and Psychology Today. He's the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology, and Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. Join us for the next hour as we explore how psychology can play a role as a social change agent with our guest, David Bedrick. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. David, welcome. Mm, Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) 
It's a pleasure to sit across mm-hmm. from you once more, and I would love mm-hmm. to have you start off to say something about the difference between the way you work with psychology, process-oriented psychology, or depth psychology, and that mm-hmm. of most mainstream psychologies. Mm-hmm. Most mainstream psychologies have an allopathic model that means they look for something wrong, a symptom indicates an illness. If I'm down and depressed, then I have to do antidepress me, let's say. If I have anger that disturbs me, I should reduce that anger somehow. So we take the difficulties as symptoms to reduce, relieve, or get rid of in some way. And process-oriented psychology, like Jungian psychology, looks for the meaning behind things. It doesn't pathologize. I mean, I don't look at your depression as something wrong with you. Although it has to be said, some people are helped by that, are getting a diagnosis. They get relieved to know something. They may get medication that helps them, so I'm not against that. But nonetheless, I would look at depression and say, hmm, something's taking that person down. There's a meaning behind there. Perhaps they're being pressed down, depressed, or perhaps they need to go down lower. So whatever I see, I think there's something underneath that to discover, and what we discover is going to be useful to that person in their lives. So uh, let's take depression, for example. That, yes. That's a good one uh, because it's a m- big one in our culture today. Yes. People are depressed. And, and we get, um, let's say, I know you give an example. Um, there was someone very, very famous and that, whom we all loved, and that was the actor Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. And he suffered from some depression I, and and you talk about his diagnosis and the way it was presented in the media and the way mm-hmm. that in a way that maybe didn't give us the the full picture of of a deeper understanding can can you help us with that example yeah i mean one of the one of the difficulties when the media highlights a particular person like a celebrity here's robin williams he's depressed is the first thing that happens is we all look at that person there they are out there like a scapegoat for the culture, like a um, like a symbol for something that I, David, you, Justine, don't have. So it removes it from, from us. That tends to not be so useful because we have elements of the culture at large that help cause, help is that the right word, that lead to uh, depression. For instance, um, if you're a more mainstream looking person, I'm a more or less a white male. I have a Jewish background. As a white male, I'm, my depression is more likely to be telling me, drop out a little bit. I used to practice law for 10 years, and I did some counseling with people in law firms. When those people, re- when attorneys reported being depressed to me, that usually meant they were working too hard. Something wasn't getting up. Something wanted to lay down. They say, help me get going again. Give me an antidepressant. Help me lift myself up. But that wasn't only so useful. Those people were, their depression meant drop out. <laughs> you don't need a drug to drop out. You can take a break. Maybe it's too much for you. And that, so that's a social issue in that way. I'm talking about a white male. But let's say it's a black female. Not always, but more likely that person is not empowered by the culture as much. That person could be relying on their own personal power for sure to make things happen in their lives. But then there's forces against that woman 
race and gender, two strikes against her, some people would say. There's a force pushing that person down. So her depression is more likely to be something on top of her, a weight, a culture that doesn't advance her based on her own capacities that's going to pay her 70 cents on the dollar or something like that. If they're going to listen to her name and not hire her for a job, there's studies like that. So that person is going to be more likely needing to be lifted, help me fight against the forces against me. So even there in depression, I'm starting to expand it. We're seeing it could be different depending on culture, depending on how much the culture supports you. Like a white man gets more of that privilege and black female would get less. You know, David, I can think of an mm-hmm. uh, an example of that that's yeah. very vivid that's going on right now. So we're sitting together. It's April 2017. Mm-hmm. And um, there, uh, on the media, there's a representative from California. Her name is Maxine Waters. Mm-hmm. She's a black woman, powerful woman. Mm-hmm. And so she's, she's being interviewed for various reasons on, on the media. Mm-hmm. And she recently was uh, picked out and mm-hmm. criticized mm-hmm. for her hair. Mm-hmm. Someone uh, in, uh, criticized her for her hair. They would never, that would never come up for mm-hmm. the, a white male representative. Is that the like an example of that kind of stereotyping and the kind of mm-hmm. energy that, let's say, that black woman is facing in our culture. Yes. It's a really important example. I think I remember the example. It was Bill O'Reilly, the Fox radio host. And um, and he said something like, your hair looks like James Brown's hair, another black man. But it wasn't said like as a compliment. It was said and as a dismissal. And it had nothing to do with what she, the, the, the richness of her answers. That's right. And then, and then the compounding that problem. So then there's a Bill O'Reilly, and he says something. Some people would say that's racist. I would say that, but some people don't like to use that term. To me, it just means there's a bias that is demeaning, diminishing to that particular person or hurtful to that particular person. So it is. So I, we could call that what we will. But then what happens is a number of people in the culture gather around. Some people say, that's terrible, that's racist. But a number of people say, that's not that big a deal. Why is she making a big deal about that? That's not anything. That person, that part of the culture that says that doesn't matter, that's not a racially hurtful thing to do, that dismisses the insult. There's an insult, right? I'm sitting here talking to you about something intelligent and I start talking about your hair, right? In a derogatory way. Why is a man doing that to a woman at this point? We're on new dimensions talking about intellectually about certain topics. So that's an insult. It's a put down. I'm putting you in a little box that doesn't have to do with the intelligence you're representing to me. And her, in this case, Maxine Waters' intelligence, her power, her senatorial leadership, et cetera. So that's happening. And then people around say, it's not a big deal. This is so hurtful. This is what I would love to wake up the culture to. That particular dismissal is a psychological thing. Justine, it's equivalent to if I work with a person who comes to see me and says, I was abused. I was hurt. I was sexually abused as a child. I was in a marriage and I'm being hurt, beat up. And I say something like, it's not that big a deal. Get over it. You sure it happened that way? That statement, that dismissal of the injury that person brings to me is as injurious as the initial hurt. 
it feeds into that person a psychology that says, don't take yourself seriously. Don't believe yourself. Don't respond and react as if you're being hurt. So that doesn't just happen to Maxine Waters. When she gets spoken about like that, and then people say it's not a racial or a gender issue, that communicates to black women and women in the culture. Don't take it seriously when you're, you're demeaned or dismissed because of race and gender. That's painful. So what mm-hmm. what are you are you saying that that embedded in that kind of dismissal of someone, that that injury to someone is a a bigger web mm-hmm. of history that is carried by that individual that has been part of a group, a culture that has been uh, marginalized. That's exactly right. And then it's exactly right because the dismissal is around so much. Well, racism was then, or we had a black president, whatever you want to say, something that says it's not a big deal anymore. And if that person comes to me for personal therapy, let's say a woman comes to me for personal therapy, then she says, I have a low self-esteem. What's going on with me? I eat too much. What's going on with me? And if I listen to her in, in her thoughts, she's critical of herself. I don't do this. I don't do that. I'm not doing this right. I don't look good. I'm not speaking enough. I'm too quiet. I'm speaking too much. That inner criticism is a dismissal of her all the time. It's an internalized sexism almost all the time. And I've talked to and worked with many women who are active feminists in the culture who don't know that inside themselves. Mm-hmm. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with David Bedrick, and he is the author of Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to individual and social change. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, davidbedrick.com. And he spells his last name, B-E-D-R-I-C-K, davidbedrick.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with David Bedrick. He's on the faculty of the Process Work Institute. He's an attorney, and he's the author of Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. Mm-hmm. And David, um, as you were talking about the culture, so to speak, that we all live in, I, I know that we are in a market-driven culture, and and in that way, when we were earlier talking about depression, what we 
I, I want to say value, but it's, it's our bias is that people have high energy, that they're productive, that they progress. This is like the bias that, that if you act in these ways, you are normal. If you do not act in these ways, then you are pathologized or that you have a, a symptom of something that needs fixing. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of where we're, we're stated? Yes, very much so. It makes me, your question, Justine, makes me think again about social issues. I'm thinking about Native American land and relationship and uh, a specific case, a legal case that has gone on for a long time in different steps. Most recently, I think it was in the 1980s when the Sioux Nation was offered a settlement for the Black Hills land. And that settlement now is worth over a billion dollars and the Sioux Nation has not touched that money. How come? They said, we cannot be bought. The land cannot be bought. And our relationship with the land and our relationship with the animals, it's a whole different value system. Relationship. You can't pay me, compensate me financially for that. It's not a market-driven issue. So they've put that money aside. I was amazed by that. That is an amazing thing. And I I can think of um, also the way a, a native indigenous person who has not been taken from that land, who has ancestry in that land, mm-hmm. they really belong to that land. They, they, are, they know that mm-hmm. land. They can walk that land in a way that, in a rootedness that so many mm-hmm. of us in our mm-hmm. migratory culture are not feeling. Right. Isn't that incredible? Then I think we live on this land. I'm a white person. I live in New Mexico. I live on that land. What does it mean to live there every day and not think of myself as on land that's not only mine or that has injury associated with it? Because it was people used to live there and that land was taken from them and then offered money, the insult. Mm-hmm. It's an insult to those people. In some culture, they would say, great, how much? Yeah, Let's figure right, it out. Right. But this person, it's an insult. What does that mean to live there? It's an unconscious kind of a privilege. It's so difficult to say those things because it's not a high and mighty righteous statement I'm making. We live on those other people's lands. We owe people something. It's a real feeling thing. I remember once we were doing a conflict resolution with Arnie Mandel and, and a world work. And we invite people all over the world to do conflict work. And we invited two people who were Aboriginal Australian. They were coming to the United States, to Oregon, and they got off the plane. Two people met them and drove them to Oregon. And the first night of the conference, they're not there. The second day, they're not there. The second night, they show up with four or five Native Americans, and they say, we're here. We had to find the people who this land originally belonged to and get their okay to come here. And we said, why? why? Why didn't you just come? Is it just a nicety? Is it a, what, what is it about? And they said, how can you expect to resolve any conflict unless you have permission to be here? So this is, first of all, I want to say that I was there at that world work. I was with Michael. We were there for those three weeks. It was the most powerful time of my life. It, was, it really was incredible. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to to 
to say all of that you're talking about, this has something to do with the work that you do, the depth psychology that you do. It's not easy what you do. It's not an easy formulaic sort of way of looking at symptoms. And you're looking much deeper. The conversation is going much deeper. And that's not easy. Do you have any advice as to how we can begin to open our eyes and hearts and see in this deep way. Mm. This is, I'm so glad you asked that. This is something I've been wrestling with because I've been teaching for about 20 years and studying with Arnie Mandel and process work for over 20 years. And Justine, it's still dawning on me what a paradigm shift it is. What I mean by paradigm shift is it's not usual for somebody to think that way. It's not usual for someone to say, I want to go on a diet for me to say, let's find out what you're hungry for. Even if a person could sort of conceptually guess that that's true, the person is more likely to say still, I'm hungry to lose weight so I'm healthier. Isn't that it? Like, that's what I want in my life. Why can't you just give me that? And I could say, well, I could try to give you that. The research says 5 to 10% of the chance of the time that will be sustainable. It almost never works. And then if I were to say more, I'd say, and it upsets me so much. I get so upset at the selling of the bill of goods around so many things, fixes that really don't work. And not only that, don't honor the depth of who we are, of where we come from, of the land we live on, of the skin colors that we have, of the histories that we have, of the ancestors we have. All those kinds of things are, are left out. So what would I recommend? That's difficult. Connect with your body first. Ask yourself, am I male? Am I white? Am I black? Am I gay? What does that have to do with, with what's going on for me? If I'm a woman, does that play into what's happening for me? If I'm a Jewish person like me, does that play into what's happening for me? That social question is really big. It ties us to the web of relationships. You know, let's take let's take weight for example, because mm-hmm. I know that you devote a whole section in your book on on weight and diet and this sixty mm-hmm. billion dollar industry that's selling us the goods about weight. And as I was reading this part of your book, I had this deep realization of the truth of what you're saying. And so this is my confession here. Uh, I'm in my seventies. I've had a weight problem, a weight issue for most of my, all my adult life. And, and along with my partner, Michael, uh, the both of us together kind of walk this road and every decade we would gain a little more weight, a little more weight, a little more weight. And I tried everything like other people, every diet, everything. I just, I did it all. And many people can say the same thing. And then Michael passed on in uh, 2012. I took over New Dimensions. And for the first time in my life, in my adult life, I was without a, a significant other. I was standing on my own and I took over New Dimensions and started heading it up myself. And then I noticed a year ago, it's 2017, so 2016, 
I started to address this weight issue again. And David, for the first time in decades, I have been successful. I'm now 75 pounds less than what I was a year ago. It was done with ease, no hunger, no no sacrifice. I mean, just boom, it just happened with a lot of support and so forth and, and, and good nutrition and all of those things. But it worked this time. And as I was reading your book, I realized, oh, it has to do with my feeling powerful, with my feeling intelligent, my stepping into my own potential. And you know me a bit. And do you have any comment Mm, on that? Yeah. Feeling powerful, empowered, whether that's one's tenderness, one's strength, one's intelligence, one's sensitivities, various gifts, is so critical to the feeling of being oneself, to be able to be an agent for one's gifts. That sense of power is critical. If one doesn't have that sense of power, it gets expressed in some way. Food is a great way. Why? Because you can say yes and no. I can say, you shouldn't eat that. Or you could have that voice in your head and you can say, darn it, I'm going to eat it. It may not sound that way inside of you because you're feeling guilty, but something you can say, I don't care what the rules are. I'm going to have that donut. I'm going to have that steak. I'm going to eat those French fries. I'm not going to do what people tell me to do. So that ability to say yes and no is a source of power. And if you can't express that in the world in a way as an agent, whether with your gifts or your career or whoever you can in relationships, if you can't do that that way, you're going to find another way. People do that with food often or internally with their own inner voices. So it's a big thing. Why is that a big thing, especially for women? Because the diet industry is focusing mostly on women. Because women have been more disempowered by the culture. That doesn't mean any particular woman doesn't carry a lot of power. As in the Maxine Ward example, people, you, haven't found their own voices in their own sense. But the the culture is going to push against the woman's power, meaning I'm not going to be let you, I'm a man, I'm not going to let you express it as freely, let you, and then you're going to have to either bow down to me or fight with me. But it's it's all kind of unconscious. It's not a conscious thing like the men collectively, white men and collectively in the culture are not consciously saying, oh, we're going to put down women. There, There's something else going on here and mm. that isn't that... I guess he'd call it the shadow. Yeah, it's in the shadow. Sexism as internalized as women. I can tell you how many women who come to me and they would complain for therapy and would say, last night I went to a party, I had a few glasses of wine, and I started feeling really free, but I feel terrible. Maybe I shouldn't have said this. Maybe I talk too much. Maybe I shouldn't have told this person what I think. What's going on? It's in that shadow. It was a backlash. That woman is saying, now I felt a little freer to express my opinions, just not to be a listener, a good ear for other people. Now I express myself that way, and then something inside comes against me. I shouldn't have done that. I feel bad about that. I should listen. I should be more careful. That's changing over time with generations, but it's still a huge thing. So how does that power get expressed? This is a big thing. Many women do something very subtle, but it's very obvious when I 
if I sat there and studied 20 women in front of it, you would see it. Many women have what I call an internal yoga. That means they have a voice inside of them that they believe in. I should not eat. I should not do this. I should exercise. I should be more disciplined. And then something inside of them says no. Mm-hmm. I'd like to speak more about that in just one moment, but I want to make sure that I remind our listeners that I'm here with David Bedrick, and he's on the faculty of the Process Work Institute. He's an attorney. He's the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology, and also Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, davidbedrick.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with David Bedrick, and he's the author of Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. You're talking about that internal voice that we have going, that inner critic or whatever you want to call it. And I remember in that example of my own weight and and my own struggle with that, years ago, maybe 20 years ago, I had a little bit of success on one particular diet, and I had lost about 10 pounds, and I was feeling really good about it. And as I walked past the bathroom mirror, I caught a glimpse of myself through the corner of my eye, and I saw a smaller person, and I heard an internal voice. I actually heard it as an auditory voice. I mean, I don't usually hear inner voices, but this time I heard it as an actual voice. And it said to me, how will you now be powerful? And I got the insight at that time, oh my goodness, there's something in me that is equating the bigness of my body with my power at that time, I, cu- I couldn't get over it. Any psychological sort of work that I could do just couldn't push me over the edge of, of combating that voice that equated my physical, uh, physical body weight with power. Mm-hmm. So what, what would you say? Yeah, well, I'm thinking of two things. One is some women, I'm a man talking about women, I just have to say that because... But some women, especially women who have been hurt, young, abused, young, end up creating big bodies. One, th- I'm, I'm saying it carefully because it's not everybody. There's all, everything is, you have mm-hmm. to look at individuals. But many women have abuse histories and get a large body. And if I said, what's it like to have a large body? And I could get them past, well, it's terrible. I'm a terrible person. I can get mm-hmm. them past the criticism of that. They would say, Something like it feels like a big cushion 
armor, protection around me. In that way, there's an intelligence. I'm not saying that's the best way to do it, but there's an intelligence, a manifestation of protection happening in the body. Again, not consciously. I'm not sitting there uh, thinking, I'm going to eat a lot so I, men won't be attracted to me. Some women actually do think that consciously, but very few do. But many are comforted knowing that their men are going to hit on them less, come near them less, and that they feel this sense of moat, protection, uh, cushioning between them and the world. That goes into the whole way that you do depth psychology. You would then, rather than saying, oh, this is a symptom we have to get rid of, a large body, because it's not healthy, uh, so we're going to get rid of this symptom. What what you would do is to to look at the benefit that is being derived from that that symptom. Mm, that's right. So the benefit. Go ahead. Yeah. If that woman if that woman tells me that, look and gets to that spot where she can reveal that insight, I feel safer in the world with this body, I have to say to her, what can we do to help you feel safer in the world? Before I say, let's get rid of the weight. She's saying to me, being safe in the world is more important to me than my health. Her body is saying that to me. She's giving me that message. I have to take that deadly serious and say, how do you do that? And what's going to be the answer? That goes back to what you were saying, Justine. How do I create the power to push people back to, to set a boundary, to say no, to say this is my physical space I'm going to take up. This is the emotional space I'm going to take up. I have to now do consciously with my own empowered sense with agency what my body was once doing not terribly well, make space between me and people and make me feel safe. Well, exactly. There you go. There you go. I, I really see that. I'd love to talk about, um, I know that you mentioned one of your mentors uh, early on that has inspired you through the years, mm-hmm. and um, that's Maya, Dr. Maya Angelou. And I was wondering, what is it about her that just grabbed you and inspired you very mm-hmm. early on? This is an amazing thing. The first, I went to see her many times before she passed. And the first time I went to see her, she opened her mouth. She said, hello. I think it was in seven languages. I didn't know much about her. She hadn't offered me any content. She just used her voice. And I started weeping. I thought, why am I weeping? She hasn't said anything yet. There was something about the sound, the tone of her voice. And if I could have put words to it, I would say, oh, that's what an authentic voice sounds like. I didn't have those words, but something touched me. And then later I learned her story that when she was, I'm going to get the ages wrong. I think she was five or six and then she was raped. And um, young black girl in the South, she's raped. And then she's thinking, should I tell, I want to say it's my uncle. I I think if I just read it, that that I think it was her uncle that she told. Yeah. Should I tell him? oh my gosh, maybe something will bad happen. And she tells the uncle. And then sometime later, a knock on the door comes, it's the sheriff, and they find the man who abused her dead. And she concludes in her child's mind, I caused this person's death. I shouldn't speak. My voice can do things. This alone, back to our conversation, Justine, is such a big thing. My voice is so powerful, it could kill. On the downside, she didn't cause this person's death. That's like a bad thing for her to psychologically think, etc. On the positive side, she does have a very powerful voice. If you hear her read poems, it can shake you. It can rattle your soul a bit. So she does have a powerful voice. But then she doesn't speak for like five and a half years, six years. And her grandmother, who she called Mama, says, 
don't worry, you're going to be a great teacher someday. She cooks something inside of herself. The grandmother is able to do two things. One, a traditional thing. Oh my gosh, my granddaughter's hurt. Let's protect her. And grandmother was very protective of her. And then the second thing, a more depth thing. Something's growing in that silence. That doesn't dismiss the fact that she was hurt, badly injured. That has to be taken very seriously. And what's happening in this strange way that she deals with it by speaking up, thinking her voice caused something terrible and then becoming silent and then having this voice raise up, which has this resonance. So when I heard that voice, I went and looked up, how did she develop that voice? Grandma, mama, an injury and like an alchemical chamber, we could say a pot where somebody holds that grandma, holds that and says something amazing is cooking in there. I'm going to hang out there. I'm not going to try to get you to speak yet. I'm going to just keep telling you something amazing is happening in that silent space. You so she was like a depth psychologist. She gave her a container that was safe, that she held, held the world mm-hmm. out from, from hurting Maya, this young child, and mm-hmm. she trusted her process. Beautifully said. She trusts her process. And then she doesn't dismiss a single thing. I remember this story that Maya Angel put, uh, put out a cookbook. Uh, speaking of food, she put out a cookbook and she tells a story of when she was a child and she'd go to school and she would get teased by the students because she wasn't speaking. You're retarded, you're this, and all the insults that kids can throw at another person and make them feel bad. And one of the times the teacher agreed. I can't remember what the word was. Maybe the teacher said, yeah, she's a weirdo, she's retarded. And they used that word back then to mean something stupid or something like that. So she uses that word and she comes home crying to mama and mama takes her to the school, gets in front of the classroom with the students and teacher there and smacks the teacher in the face, then apologizes and said, I shouldn't have done that. Then takes Maya home and makes her her favorite chocolate cake. It takes her four hours to make this cake and says, this will never make up for what happened to you. That's not dismissing something. That's a person who is not thinking it's okay to be mistreated. She puts that in so deeply. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so powerful. And mm-hmm. such a, and, and then you see Dr. Angelou years later just affecting the whole culture. I mean, we, so many of us have been touched by her life and her voice and her poetry and her writing and her acting and her artistry and, on and on and on. Uh, she just has been a, a true mentor to show us how to live beyond the uh, wounds that we carry. Mm-hmm. It's part of understanding racism, especially for people who are not African-American, not Native American, not brown-skinned in some way, that in a study or understanding or working with one's own skin color, as a white person also, You can find not only I should be better, I should be a better white person, I can be an ally, I shouldn't be racist, all those things that I can learn, but you also get entrance to a world that has shadow, depth, struggle, suffering, blues, deep joys, creativity in one's own being. You can get a connection with your own soul because here we are in America, a place that has a wound around racism, a big wound. What does it have to do with me as a person? Well, when I should be a better person and be awake, great. But then deeper than that, if I can connect with that wound, just like if I can connect with my own, a doorway is going to open to me and I'm going to have to 
grow in ways that are going to be magnificent, more magnificent, I think, than any other development possibility one has as a white person is to learn about racism inside and out and what it means to walk around in one's own body. That's so well said. And I that, that just reminds me, uh, the, the kind of um, dialogues that are needed in this time to have the courage as, um, let's say, a white person in this culture, to have the courage to have a true, deep dialogue about racism. And one of the things you talk about in your book, in your writings, that I thought was really interesting, um, you talk about in the very beginning of this dialogue, and it's something I didn't realize, uh, the first thing that one might need to do in within a group of people is to really define the word racism, because it can mean different things to different people. Mm-hmm. That's right. Some people would say any time one targets a race, regardless of that race, and has a bias against that race, that would be racism. So you could be racist against white people, potentially. Because you could say, white people are no good, they're evil, they're bad, etc. You could, you could call that racism. One of the difficulties with using the word racism for that and racism against a black person, one of the difficulties with that is they're not exactly the same. So if I say, if a black person hates a white person because they're white, I hate white people, and a white person hurts a black person because they're black, I hate black people, they're equivalent. Making that statement as if they're equivalent Again, it dismisses something. There's a real difference. If there was a black person here, they should say, they would say, I would say for them if they didn't want to say, do you not know the difference between walking around in white skin and black skin, David? And I sh- and if I said, no, I don't know the difference, then somebody should educate me. You know, mm-hmm. David, uh, just to point out something, I, I had a dialogue like this within a group of people, and it was led by um, an African-American woman. And she said in this particular time, we spent a whole day together, and she said, I, first of all, the first thing I think about about myself is I am a black person. That is number one. Before I think that I'm a woman, I'm a psychologist, I'm a workshop leader, I'm a writer, I'm anything else, I am a black person. And I know that there was not a white person in the room that could say the same. I'm here with David Bedrick. He's the author of Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with David Bedrick. He's on the faculty of the Process Work Institute. He's an attorney, and he's the author of Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. And David, we're talking about racism in particular, and and I just mentioned uh, an experience I had of a dialogue we were having, and I just made the comment that uh, a white person would never describe themselves for the most part, as the first thing that comes out of their mouth, I am a white person, and then I am a woman, I am a radio producer, blah, blah, blah. But a black person might say, I am a black person first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, there's so many levels to what we're, we're, we're talking here. The, the, the president, I think actually he's no longer president, and her name escapes me. I'm sorry about that. He was the president of Spelman College. And she did a study and she would, and the study said, fill out the statement, I am. And if you were black, you almost always wrote black. If you're a woman, about 60, 70% of the time, you wrote woman, right? If you're a white man, you said, I'm an attorney. I'm an athlete. I love, I'm a person who loves Netflix, right? You didn't think about your skin color at all. So that has a number of points. One is if you're in darker skin, you don't have the privilege of forgetting your color. I can't say, I'm David. I At least in this culture, in the U.S. culture, right. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's right, in the U.S. culture. And then on the downside, as a white person, I don't think about the fact I'm white. That's also a, a blind spot for me. So I think I'm just this individual walking around disconnected from all kinds of things. My own history, European history, for me, Jewish history, etc. That's likely to get lost. That will disconnect me from many of the things that are happening for me. I'll forget that what's happening for me is is related to all kinds of things. I'll think everything is individual. You have said there are there is no symptom that belongs only to the individual, whether that symptom is emotional, spiritual, physical, social, or financial. So that's a powerful statement that no symptom is is totally living on its on its own merit. It's it's embedded and webbed into this other other part of all culture. Mm-hmm. It's so important. I make that statement so strongly because I get so upset at people coming to me saying they have individual problems. They do. I still have whatever. I have my cough or I have my angers or I have my anxieties or insecurities. That's all important. But we're so darn disconnected. And popular psychology especially has furthered that because popular psychology has a racial bias in it. It's mostly white psychology. <laughs> Many black people don't go to psychology for those for various reasons. I think that's one of them. So we get that disconnection. I'm a Jewish person. If I talked about my Jewish family history, I lived in a in a violent home. My father used fists and belts and things like that. And, um, and my mother was very disempowered. If, you, if I tell you that story and don't tell you about the Jewish background to the story or learn myself what the Jewish background to that story is, I'm not going to understand what that was all about. Well, I've, I've, I've heard, David, that there's a, a whole culture of, of next-generation Jewish children who have grown up, not not in the Holocaust directly, but they are all affected because of the way it's held by their parents and their grandparents, either spoken about or not spoken about. Uh, just There's a whole culture of this other generation of Jewish children. Yes. I can tell 
literally within five to 10 minutes, if I have a Jewish client and I work with many Jewish clients, I can tell you within five, 10 minutes, if, if I'm 60, so if, if that person is close to my generation, 30, 40, 50, 60 even, I can tell you whether their parents spoke about the Holocaust and anti-Semitism or not. How do I know right away, even if they don't mention anything about it? There's a huge, for me, there's a huge glaring hole that I'm looking at. They don't know what they're connected to, the way they talk about themselves, the way they criticize themselves, the way they don't defend themselves, the way they think they should be in the world. I can say, your parents never talked about the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. They'll say, how'd you know that? Me, but it's yeah. like not talking about the elephant in the room, and therefore the elephant exists in the room. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. You talked during one of the breaks about the secrets. This happens also if there's a family that has violence in the family from, let's say, the grandparents and then the parents and then to your generation. And then if that secret, let's say somebody was sexually abused, let's say grandfather, I'm thinking of so many stories, was sexually abused the daughters and then various things happen to certain people. And I'll tell people, if, if I have a client, I'll say, have you talked to your, how old are your children? My children are 27. Have you talked to them about what you know? No, you should tell them. How come? Because there's a hole in their psyche. What does that mean? That means that they'll go out and get into situations and they won't recognize the signals. They won't recognize the communication. They won't know how to protect themselves. They'll even, in a way, this is a strange thing to say, look for situations that are dangerous almost to fill out the story. How could that possibly happen, Dave? It doesn't make any sense. They don't know anything. It happens reliably. You have to give me the protection I need. You have to give me the big body I need. You have to say, grandfather did this. This is how he did that. This is the stories in our family. And then when I walk out into the world, I'm going to recognize that I'm going to be more awake to that. I'm going to be safer. You won't make me safer by not telling me. Although people try to do that, I'm out of good motive, but you can't do it that way. I, I don't, I'm thinking of this strange analogy there mm-hmm. as, just, as you said that. I'm thinking of the analogy of it's safer to have a sharp knife than a dull one. If you're, if you're in cooking, if you have a sharp knife, you can trust, you can cut things really easily. If you have a dull knife, you have, there's more of a tendency to hurt yourself. Do, do you know what I'm saying? I, yes, I know exactly what you're saying. We have to, we have, I'm thinking of that in terms of our awareness. Our awareness has to grow and be sharp. Japanese post-war, post-Nagasaki, Hiroshima generation, a lot of the families did not want to tell their children because it was so awful. You get this hole in their psyche and they dream about those things and get into difficulties. Germans, the Germans who were one generation or two generations away from Nazi Germany, parents were like totally ashamed of granddad who was in Nazi uh, student group, youth groups. But then that person ends up dreaming about that, having problems, even physical health problems. All kinds of stories happen. So you see that in Jews here, you see it in African-Americans, you see it in Native Americans, you see in Japanese post-World War II, you see that in, um, in Germans. You have to fill it in. That goes back to this, this issue. We're connected. Those stories have to be pulled in. We're not only isolated. If I'm depressed, if I'm depressed, we should talk about Am I a Jew? Am I a female? Am I a male? Am I black? Tell me about the family history. If I'm German, if I'm Native American, what does that mean? If I'm gay, so what does that mean about my depression and suicidality? It means something. So it, we have to be inclusive. David, I'd love to, to have you talk about some one other thing. I mean, we, we could go on. There are so many things, but there, I would love to have you touch on 
the fact of um, death and dying and, let's say, Alzheimer's and other things that are going on with our loved ones as they pass on. And you had an experience with your own mother that was just such a beautiful story. I'd love for you to tell us how you coped with her alternate thinking, Mm -hmm. her alternative world or her Mm -hmm. altered state. Mm My eyes got watery when you asked. I didn't expect you to bring that up. That's fine to do. I just I have more feeling about that than I had realized. Yeah, my mother and I had a very strained relationship, partially because we lived in a violent home and she couldn't address it. She dismissed it, just like people dismiss social issues. This wasn't that big a deal, et cetera. It didn't really happen. So that made a very big strain between her and I. But towards the end of her life, uh, her mind went, what people would say. She had some forms of dementia. And I remember one time I saw her in the last year, I was standing right across from her. And she said, who are you? And I said, who do you think I am? She says, well, I don't know who you are. But I'm looking for my son. And she got very nervous. She clutched her handbag. That's what she would do. Like I was some kind of bad person or something like that. Um, but um, But I always enjoyed when people were not in their quote normal minds. I like to dream. As a, as a Jungian-oriented psychologist, I like to dream. So I would always just talk to her and go wherever she would go. I'd say, who do you think I am? I think you're the person on the ship. What ship? The ship that we're cruising on. Oh my gosh, where are we going? We're going to the islands in the Bahamas. Oh my gosh, are we eating? No. Are you having martinis? She liked martinis. Oh, yeah. How good are they? Oh, I love it. They only put one olive in this. And then we would go off on these journeys together. I made up names for her. She made up names for me. I don't not consciously. We had the sweetest time. It was all in imaginal, but it's in a way more real feeling-wise. We were having more tenderness, warmth, love between each other than we had in our quote-unquote real conversations. The feelings were real. The details, somebody would say, are not. And I, I think that if I remember correctly, she even came to some point where she said, described you as being a really good person. Mm, yeah. See, now you're getting to me again. Yeah. <laughs> she did. We argued a lot about what went on in our family and because she wanted to maintain this nothing went bad uh, in the family attitude. Yeah, and one day she said to me, how did you get to be such a good person? <laughs> she said to me. And I thought it was one of those... The child in me was always waiting for her to think, oh my gosh, I tried to, I always reached out to people and tried to help people. And she always looked at that as something that was not so worthy. And um, she used to say to me, stop trying to change the world, David. And my father said to me, you're a dreamer. I became a dream analyst and an activist. (laughs) What choice did I have? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, I'm glad that you made the choices that you have. And I want to thank you so much, David, for being with us today. I've been here with David Bedrick. He's on the faculty of the Process Work Institute. He's an attorney, and he's the author of several books. One, uh, Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology, and also Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, davidbedrick.com. He spells his last name B-E-D-R-I-C-K, davidbedrick.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening 
to New Dimensions. This is program number 3613. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.